You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. This podcast will discuss national security issues in the news and provide critical baseline information about the issues for new lawyers, lawyers that have been practicing national security law for years, journalists, and non-lawyers eager to improve their understanding of national security issues. And I'm Elisa, another one of your regular moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors, and the committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing issues in national security law today. Join us in one of our monthly speaker programs. We'll tell you more about these dates at the end of the podcast. We will deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law, but will never be boring. Unless you prefer to just skim the surface and read only the tweets without clicking on the link to the substantive article. Hey, not our listeners, Nicole. Our listeners may have device-induced ADHD like the rest of America, but when it comes to the topic of national security law, they listen with the focus of a hawk that has just espied a shrew. Or something like that. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to the podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, academic articles on today's topic available on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABA NatSec. We welcome your feedback. Today, I will be yielding my seat to one of the Standing Committee's best leaders, Mr. Harvey Rishikoff, the Advisory Committee Chair. Uh, We have named him an honorary millennial for this podcast, and he is probably the exact right person to fill in because he was on a group of folks uh, from the Office of National Counterintelligence Executive, published a report known as Foreign Spies Stealing U.S. Economic Secrets in Cyberspace. Thank you, Elisa and Nicole. It's very sweet of you to put this on like this, and I want to thank both of you because you've been moving forces in this podcast. But today we continue our series on private national security law with the discussion about the loss of corporate intellectual property and secrets and how this threatens our national security. Uh, The report you referenced came out in 2011 when we were the National Counterintelligence Executive which has now become the National Counter, I think, Center, works under the DNI. And the moving forces at that time was a legendary figure in counterintelligence, Bear Bryant. And it was the first time, actually, that in an unclassified document, uh, Iran, Russia, and China were named as advanced persistent threats with a particular focus on intellectual property. So today we have, and I'm very happy to say, the Deputy Assistant Attorney General, of the, National, of the National Security Division, Adam Hickey, and the Chief of Counterintelligence and Export Control Section, the legendary David Laughlin. And it's great to have you guys here. It's a real honor. As you know, this problem has been a problem that we have seen grow over the last number of years. 
According to Forbes magazine, the U.S. is on the slate to lose an estimated $2 trillion a year through cybercrime. And according to the Intellectual Property Commission report for 2017, concluded that the U.S. economy loses between $225 and $600 billion from the theft of intellectual property per year. Part of the real issue, though, is how we lose on the issue of innovation. And innovation is one of the keys to understanding how a market system grows. And you can put the effect on dollars, but when actually when you focus on innovation, which is the cutting edge of comparative competitive advantage, that's where we become quite concerned of why this is serious. Uh, the two of you are on the front lines to punish those who steal the nation's intellectual property. Uh, thank you, and we are, as I said, we're honored to have you. And uh, Adam and David, any thoughts to begin? Well, first, thank you very much for having us here. We really appreciate it. It's great to be here. Ditto. Appreciate you doing this. And right, and the, the goal of always is to keep you both promotable. So we want you to be frank and honest, but at the same time, as we said, a sober conversation. Adam, you're a graduate of Harvard College, but I see, unfortunately, you made the decision to go to Yale. For law school. Okay. Uh, that's right. And you were an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, where I think you focused on national security cases. And then you were deputy chief of, of appeals. Is that correct? That's right. And then beginning in 2012, you stood up DOJ's national security cyber programs, instituting criminal investigations and prosecutions on foreign state-sponsored hackers who targeted private companies and critical infrastructure. Now, as the DAG for national asset protection, you supervise all of NSD's efforts to counter state-sponsored threats to the private sector through cyberspace, economic espionage, proliferation, and foreign investment. Quite a portfolio. Yes, it's created uh, with an eye towards the different ways foreign states can target the private sector. Right, It can be theft through hacking, but can also be through insiders. Proliferation is a concern as much as theft. And foreign investment is another avenue uh, through which foreign countries can undermine our security. Yeah, absolutely. And David, among your previous positions, you were also chief of staff to the deputy attorney general and assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia. I think we know that as the rocket docket. So-called. Uh, where you prosecuted terrorism and other national security cases. Uh, the section you lead at the Justice Department is responsible for investigating and prosecuting economic espionage, as well as, as offenses concerning U.S. export control, economic sanctions, cyber intrusion, and attacks by foreign nation-state and their proxies, espionage, and foreign agent registration and disclosure. So I would say, first off, what do you two believe is the biggest challenges, would you say, leading your sections? David, why don't you start? I think the biggest uh, challenge we have is staying on top of a threat that is multidimensional, that is relentless, um, and that requires us to devote substantial resources, utilizing our law enforcement and U.S. intelligence community partners to detect threats, uh, determine what appropriate responses should be brought to bear, whether they're criminal responses or other tools at our disposal, some of which Adam will mm. talk about today. Um, and uh, it, is a, it is a relentless undertaking. Great. And what would you say? I'm just relieved David didn't say I was the biggest challenge in his <laughs> professional life. Um, I think, David, I, I couldn't say it better than he has. It's a dynamic threat environment, and particularly in national security, though I think for law enforcement generally, you know, the way you've always done things or the way you conceive of the threat um, is not necessarily the best indicator of what you should be doing now. And I think the, the way we've pivoted on cyber threats is a good example of that. Because prior to 2012, if a case was viewed as a national security cyber case, it was viewed principally as an intelligence collection challenge. 
it was not viewed as amenable to criminal tools. And so I spent much of my Justice Department career trying to convince people that they shouldn't refer to the world as criminal national security, because most national security threats involve crimes, and criminal tools can be uh, used effectively to raise the costs of those crimes and deter mm -hmm. them. Perfect. So can you help us understand why the theft of intellectual property is a national security threat? Sure thing. Uh, let me start by being clear about uh, the universe of things that are being stolen. So when we talk about intellectual property, I think what comes first to mind is probably trade secrets or other cutting-edge technology, uh, things a foreign company or government might want to reproduce, the secret sauce, if you will. It might also be subject to export controls and cannot be lawfully removed from the U.S. or even viewed by a foreign national without a license. And in that circumstance, it's probably obvious why it's a national security concern, right? Because we have licensing controls in place to prevent it from being exported. But we've also seen a broader category of information being stolen. And it's broader than the term intellectual property. It's sensitive business information that can give a competitor or even a, a joint venture partner an edge in some way. It can be business process information, right? The strategies that businesses use to compete worldwide, the lessons they've learned from R&D. If you spend three years experimenting with the best way to make a widget, what's valuable is not just the end product you have. It's the lessons learned from that three years of development. And if your competitor can shortcut, they may not be able to make the end widget, but the benefit they get from your lessons learned can be enormous. So the theft of a single trade secret or single piece of commercial information may or may not be a national security threat. It depends on the nature of the technology. But if you aggregate thefts, if you're talking about thefts by the thousands across all industries, across the country, across decades, you get to what the former director of the National Security Agency, Keith Alexander, called the greatest transfer of wealth in history. And Harvey, you referred to estimates in the hundreds of billions of dollars. At that level, you're talking about eroding our, as you put it, technological edge, uh, our economic stability, and from that, potentially our national security. Great. Thank you. So, as you guys well know, in September of 2015, China and the United States committed to a norm in cyberspace that nations should not steal intellectual property and confidential business information to benefit their own industries. And I think we believe one of the triggering events was the prosecution in Pittsburgh that U.S. Attorney David Hickton filed on those five individuals, which was a, a, an earth-shattering moment for us to have done that and was one of, I think, the contributing factors to the summit discussion. So what do you think is the status of that commitment? And as we would like to know is from your perspective, do you think China is holding up its end of the deal? So we're monitoring for compliance. I think that's the bottom line answer to that. But as you pointed out, I think the commitment itself is a great example of the benefit we've gotten from using criminal investigations in this context. And the reason why is, you know, it was important to put down a marker between or at the difference between legitimate intelligence collection and theft, pure and simple. And so charging something as a crime is a very legible way of saying that's wrong. Nations shouldn't engage in that. And not only did China agree to that norm that I think you referred to in September 2015, so did the other nations in the G20. Uh, so we'll continue to look for compliance with that norm, and we'll handle any incidents of noncompliance in any number of ways as, as suits our na national interest. But I will say that some in the private sector have 
pointed out, there's been a decrease in state-sponsored IP theft, as far as they can tell, since either the commitment in 2015 or even before that, the charging of the case in 2014. And I think the most important difference is that we've moved from a place where people accepted cyber espionage as normal, as something that was impossible to counteract, to monitoring China for compliance. And I don't just mean the government, I mean the private sector. So moving to a world where the stakes are higher for China from this kind of theft, from getting caught, is, I think, a a meaningful improvement. Right. I commend you. So, so David, you've been quiet, so we want to get you into the conversation. And so I, at one point, was at Cruel Mooring where we are developing a cyber security practice. And if you look around town these days, I'd say most of the big firms have evolving cyber security practices. So how do private lawyers working with companies to protect national security and intellectual property, um, what would be sort of your thoughts about how one thinks about that? Well, if Aristotle said, know thyself, uh, a smart attorney is going to know thy client and thy client's mm-hmm. threat environment. And so attorneys for U.S. companies that possess valuable intellectual property have to be acutely aware of the threat environment that their clients face. As I mentioned at the outset, American companies are under relentless attack by foreign actors, including nation states and their proxies, who are intent on stealing trade secrets and other forms of proprietary intellectual property like Adam has described. Sometimes the attempt to steal intellectual property from U.S. companies is downright audacious. For example, in early 2016, an individual by the name of Mo Hei Long, who was a lawful permanent resident and employee of a China-based seed company, was convicted by means of a guilty plea of participating in a long-term conspiracy to steal trade secrets from DuPont Pioneer in Monsanto, all for the purpose of covertly transferring that valuable technology to China. In October of last year, he was sentenced to 36 months in prison. Uh, This individual and his co-conspirators brazenly stole inbred corn seeds from production fields in Idaho, if you can fix that image in your mind. And that's the type of threat sometimes that U.S. companies are up against. Yeah, I, I like this case because it demonstrates what you think is not you focus on, but the significance, both commercially and intellectually, of these seeds is dramatic. And it's an incredible large market, and um, there's lots of puns that could be made, but we'll be more focused on the law here. So um, could you talk a little bit more about the significance of that case? Well, I mean, that case is, um, you know, a colorful example of the uh, aggressiveness of the threat. I mean, individuals on their hands and knees in a cornfield scooping up seeds that could maybe be barely seen to most people uh, that are the subject of tens of millions of dollars in agricultural R&D who, through the scrutiny of company officials, happen to get caught. Uh, But more often than not, we see two other, I would say, main threat vectors for economic espionage. As always, companies have to remain constantly vigilant to employees who represent an insider threat. But today, as Adam has indicated and we've been talking about, U.S. companies are increasingly experiencing the loss of proprietary information through cyber attacks and intrusions on their computer networks. And even more so nowadays, the computer networks of third-party companies and their supply chains of goods and services who may have credentials to access portions of their networks. Yes, and sir. I just want to add, it's not um, mutually exclusive, right? There's the challenge of the mixing of the two, right? The company employee who may not himself be in a position to steal the trade secret, but because of his or her physical access to the company's networks can facilitate a 
computer intrusion that may be more difficult if you don't have access to the company's network. Right. We say that's part of the evolving insider threat problem, and that's part of the issue in this space because you have both software and hardware, but the insider threat is something that all the private sector is trying to figure out what the appropriate way is to get a handle on that. I guess the obvious pun is that this was a groundbreaking case, and we uh, <laughs> thank all oh. of you for that. Wow. So, but let's move on. So, uh, one of the other major players in this process, of course, is the executive branch. And how do you see how the executive branch is framing these issues from the from the vantage point of justice? Well, we'll talk a little bit more about criminal prosecution in a minute or two, but this problem is so serious and now so consequential that in uh, 2015, then-President Obama issued an executive order authorizing Treasury Department sanctions for individuals and entities who, by malicious cyber means, cause a significant misappropriation of trade secrets for commercial or competitive advantage or private financial gain. So we're seeing that multi-agency approach, this all-tools approach that you hear NSD preach in action. So that's the kind of government piece to it. And how does the role of a private national security lawyer play out in terms of establishing the best practices for your clients to prevent the loss of IP and for yourselves? Well, let's take the insider threat environment that we've talked about. Um, in that arena, law firms should be working closely with an array of individuals to deal with the threat, with in-house security, with IT professionals, as well as in-house counsel, uh, so they can make sure that policies and procedures are in effect to detect the warning signs that an employee, a possible disgruntled employee, may be gathering and passing information outside the company. Um, there's a variety of means they can do that. Uh, lawful auditing of employees' use of company computer networks is one obvious one. And as a threshold, matter, it may seem obvious to say, but companies need, in the first instance, to do some self-searching. They need a clear understanding of what their so-called crown jewels of intellectual property are in the first instance, how they're stored, who has access to them, and what mechanisms exist to track that access. Counsel for companies in this situation need to ensure that there's buy-in at the highest levels of the company, at the C-suite level, not just among, for example, security professionals uh, for a rigorous insider threat detection program, as well as strong computer network defenses. And in the event of a theft of intellectual property, notwithstanding the best defenses, they should put the FBI and the Justice Department in the best possible position to mount a successful criminal prosecution under the Economic Espionage Statute which is 18 U.S.C. 1831, or the general statute prohibiting the theft of trade secrets, 18 U.S.C. 1832. So I just want to say that it makes me feel old because I remember when Bear Bryant at the Bureau with the main justice and Janet Reno helped push that statute through. So I mentioned, you know, two statutes, 1831 involves, you know, the government having sufficient admissible proof that... um, the theft benefited a foreign government or instrumentality. But under either statute, the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that a trade secret, as defined uh, by the statute, was stolen. And that means we have to prove, among other things, that the victim company took so-called reasonable measures to keep the proprietary information that was stolen a secret. And that term, reasonable measures, is not defined in the statute. But courts have interpreted the term through the case law that has emerged, and they've interpreted the term to include a variety of things, non-disclosure or confidentiality agreements, labeling or making or marking of information as proprietary, uh, restricting access to a trade secret on a need-to-know basis, you know, physical security measures like limiting plant or facility access, and of course, constant training uh, sessions with employees. Great. 
what has the experience at DA shown of that, uh, what we should be looking for in private companies? What would be your advice? Well, the FBI advises that uh, various behavioral indicators may point to whether an employee is an insider threat who may be intent on stealing the company's intellectual property and maybe transferring it to a competitor or to a foreign government or instrumentality. Uh, there's a variety of these types of indicators that Outside counsel should make sure that their in-house counterparts are aware of. For example, has the employee become disgruntled to the point of possibly wanting to retaliate against the organization? Does the employee seek or obtain proprietary information on subjects not related to their work duties and of interest potentially to foreign entities or business competitors? Does the employee disregard company computer policies on installing personal software or hardware, accessing restricted websites, conducting unauthorized web searches, or downloading confidential information? Has the employee been found without need or authorization to have taken proprietary material home via documents or thumb drives or computer disks or email? Does the employee work odd hours without authorization, remotely access the computer system at odd times? Does the employee have unreported foreign contacts or overseas travel or make short trips to foreign countries for unexplained or strange reasons? Are there signs of unexplained affluence that are inconsistent with the employee's income? All those and more, it's a non-exclusive list, are red flags that should be brought to the attention of in-house counsel and outside counsel to help devise a mitigating strategy. Well, what if the threat is not from anyone inside the company but an external party? Well, to the extent you're talking about the risk of cyber intrusions, um, you know, companies as a baseline obviously need to maintain a robust and constantly evolving and adopting computer network defense um, as well as uh, sustained cyber hygiene training for employees, for example, on how to recognize spear phishing emails that can give malicious actors access to the company's most valuable intellectual property. Right. So, as you know, we say this is what we've been discussing is left of boom. Uh, we use the arcane terminology, uh, usually derived from explosive I- uh, enterprise devices that we brought over. That is left of boom. But now when there's a boom and something's gone wrong, what is one supposed to do? Well, as we crisscross the country speaking to industry audiences, we exhort our colleagues to ensure that their clients, uh, their companies who they represent, have in effect and, in fact, actually implement an actionable cyber incident management plan and that they actually rehearse that plan, just like a fire drill. And uh, those plans consist of, you know, several important attributes, but one of them is that uh, they should provide for early notification of law enforcement and mechanisms to work cooperatively with the government in order to identify who committed the intrusion, uh, to find out what was stolen, and to help determine where the stolen intellectual property went. And uh, I think, Harvey, your distinction between prevention and response is one worth making because, unfortunately, in the context of computer intrusions, there's a a saying attributed to to Director Mueller, uh, and it's repeated in different ways, but it goes something like there are two types of companies in America, those who have been hacked and know it and those who don't. And so, you know, prevention is laudable and you should do everything you can to prevent an unauthorized intrusion or minimize the impact of it. But you're also, if, if something should happen on network, you're going to want to be in a position to dig down and understand what was stolen uh, as much as you can about who and, and when they stole it and where they took it. And so we are uh, sometimes in a situation where the company we're helping has not kept the necessary network logs to really understand what happened on their network in hindsight. And that's not just, um, you know, of relevance to law enforcement as we try to piece together what happened and who we might 
charge, but it's of relevance to the company because they need to answer questions about what was potentially compromised and what happened to it. And those logs can be important clues to that. Yeah, we often say CISO stands for careers over when that boom happens, which is unfortunate, but so much tension pressure is put on them. You, you joke about it. I'm, I'm hopeful we're moving um, to a point, though, where there's an understanding that we are up against some very tough adversaries and that a sacrificial lamb might not necessarily be, the, be necessary. Um, what is important, prevention is important, reasonable defensive measures are important, but how quickly a company gets back on its feet, gets back to business as usual, can address concerns of consumers and employees and shareholders alike. What David talks about in terms of having a response plan, I think that is as, as important as having reasonable measures on the network. So for a hypothetical example, a U.S. company that has taken all the protective measures that it can and it's produced a cure for a common disease, but they find out that a company they've never heard of in Inner Mongolia somewhere is producing that same drug that they've been trialing for years, what would they do next? <laughs> so that's quite a coincidence. Uh, and a number of things could have happened. Obviously, the foreign company might have developed the drug on their own as a, as a matter of coincidence. But maybe there are indications that a former employee of the U.S. company now works at the foreign company. Maybe there's a suggestion that he was disgruntled, as David suggested, or had a reason or access to take trade secrets. Or maybe uh, if you dig a little deeper, you find indications of intrusion activity on the company's network, uh, the database or servers that held the proprietary information or information about the trials. Um, those are just some of the questions that come to mind if you see this coincidence. And there are reasons to call the FBI and do an internal investigation, work with law enforcement to try to figure out what happened there. And I think the reason why you want to contact the FBI and not just do an internal investigation is that you know, our initial objective in law enforcement is going to be to determine who was responsible and whether they uh, committed a crime and to hold them accountable. But that can't be the end of the story, particularly in the national security context. We're also concerned with preventing crime. So we're going to be interested in whether there are ongoing threats to the company and its intellectual property. And we're going to look for ways that we can do justice for the American company. And that means looking to see whether there are ways to win compensation for it or other measures that will deny the foreign company the sort of unjust gains they may have gotten if, in fact, they, they're benefiting from stolen IP. Let me give you an example. I think it's a good one because it demonstrates how dogged the Department of Justice will be in trying to get justice for the American companies. In 2012, for the first time ever, we indicted a state-owned company, a Chinese state-owned enterprise known as the Pongong Group for economic espionage. I should say, actually, it was the grand jury that indicted the company. <laughs> we did not. Um, but it's the first time the Justice Department has ever proposed charges against a foreign SOE for economic espionage. And according to the indictment in that case, a former employee at DuPont had helped steal the process for manufacturing a compound known as titanium dioxide, which, to put it simply, is the color white. It's a compound used to color everything from the white M on the M&Ms to this, probably this uh, wall we're sitting in front of. That employee was tried and convicted and received the maximum statutory penalty of 15 years in prison, which is good and fair, but maybe doesn't help DuPont so much as we would like. The Chinese company, Pongong, has been resisting our efforts to hold it accountable since 2012, and we face some challenges under the rules of criminal procedure in affecting service on Pongong. We, let's just say we were official channels were not as productive as we would have hoped in accomplishing that. 
And so recognizing the challenge faced by this problem set of foreign companies operating in a kind of safe haven, together with the criminal division, we proposed a change to the criminal rules, uh, which went into effect last December. Uh, we took steps uh, based on those that change in the rules to affect what we think is notice to the company. Our measure is reasonably calculated to give notice, and we're currently litigating in the Ninth Circuit uh, whether those were sufficient. I'm optimistic that we will prevail. I'm hopeful that Pongong will have its day in court and answer the charges against it, and that we'll be able to win some measure of compensation for DuPont. And look, if it's not a criminal case, we're always looking for other opportunities to impose an economic cost that deters misbeha uh, misbehavior. Some departments and agencies like the Treasury Department and the Commerce Department have particularly effective tools, and I wouldn't call them long arms exactly, but they have, they have ways of imposing costs that are more direct and more economic than merely a, a conviction mm. or charge. Well, that's great. As you know, we encourage your ability to paint them into a corner on this issue. That's too. That's really quite something. Oh, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's dry humor. So, um, I guess the next issue is what about sanctions? Uh, that's become an extraordinary tool. We think over the years as a new instrument in the national security enterprise, and we've had two former Treasury officials talk about the impact of sanctions and how does Maine Justice perceive and think about sanctions. So we are very pleased with, and we're very supportive of the executive order that David mentioned a few minutes ago from April 1st, 2015, what I'll call the Cyber Sanctions EO, mm -hmm. which is a tool that the Treasury Department can use to hold responsible those who steal IP and those who benefit from it. Um, as well as those who target critical infrastructure uh, and other cyber, uh, other offenses that have a cyber nexus. It's been used twice so far. Once last December to target two Russian criminal hackers, one of whom incidentally was then later charged uh, with unrelated conduct in the Yahoo indictment in, in January. And we used it a second time just in September of this year to target seven Iranian hackers and their IRGC front companies uh, they're accused of conducting DDoS attacks on the financial sector in 2012 and 2013. And I think, to speak for the department, we are hoping to use this tool more. We, it's, sanctions have to be used carefully and judiciously, but let's face it, we shouldn't, we shouldn't stop and let foreign businesses that are shielded by their governments or foreign individuals and let them profit from their wrongdoing without trying to reach them. Sanctions are a powerful tool. They make it essentially impossible to do business in dollars or with U.S. businesses. And they're particularly powerful because and flexible because we can rely in part on classified information to make those designation decisions. Mm -hmm. And so besides sanctions, uh, which I know you asked about, there's some other economic tools that are available to the government. One is the entities list, which commerce controls. Essentially, if you're, if you're added to it because you pose a national security threat, you'd need a license to acquire goods from the United States. And you're unlikely to get that license if you're a national security threat. I'll give you two examples of how we've used that. Uh, there is a Chinese aerospace engineer named Su Bin. Uh, he was not a hacker but he was a consultant for Chinese Air Force hackers who would send him lists of files that they stole from American aerospace companies. And he would highlight the files they should steal because they're the hackers, they're computerized. They don't know an engine necessarily from a, a flap. Subin would tell them what to steal. Well, he was actually charged initially with conspiracy to commit economic espionage when he pled guilty. That charge dropped down. Yeah. 
um, when he was arrested in Canada that very day, the companies that he owned were added to the entities list. Second example, and David can talk about this, we were investigating and ultimately charged a major Chinese telecommunications company, ZTE, with a sanctions evasion scheme. After we charged them, the Commerce Department also added them to the entities list, making it impossible for them to acquire goods from the United States without a license, which they were not going to get. And uh, earlier this year, we reached a global resolution with ZTE. It came off the entity list, but it also pled guilty to the charges against it and agreed to pay penalties of nearly a billion dollars. Separate from commerce, I I think at some point when you're talking about the sponsored, state-sponsored theft of intellectual property at a massive scale, um, one might wonder that is whether it's a violation of some form of trade agreement or whether there's a remedy there. And you know, uh, you may be familiar with the fact that USTR is now investigating mm-hmm. uh, under authority it refers to as Section 301 whether China's engaged in that kind of unfair or unreasonable trade practice, which an aspect of their investigation is the theft of intellectual property. I don't know. I don't pretend to know how that will mm-hmm. turn out. But I think the bottom line is the Justice Department, along with the rest of the executive branch, are willing to use a wide range of tools to reach those who are cheating. And uh, if we need new tools, I assure you there are a lot of creative lawyers in the, in the government. We are going to think of new ones if we need to. So uh, to bring it back from uh, examples of the drug company, and you said you should talk to the Bureau when I was in the private sector, we used to spend a lot of time trying to advise the C-suite. And most of the CEOs are not attorneys and don't have a great deal of IT background. And so it takes a little bit convincing to the, for the board and the CEOs to see this. So could you sort of help us see some successes in, in these cases you talked about so that we can help corporate boards in the C-suite understand what they should be doing and what the best approaches would be? Sure. Let me begin just by underscoring that the Justice Department uh, has a robust understanding that the theft of a company's prized intellectual property is a pretty traumatic event for that company in a lot of ways. And while we want very much to bring the wrongdoers to justice, the last thing we want to do is to leave the company feeling Mm -hmm. like a criminal prosecution has made things worse, has made them feel like they're re-victimized. And so, In economic espionage cases, I'd say we've generally encountered two main concerns on the part of the victim company. First, a concern about publicity, uh, fearful that the company's name being made public in a prosecution could be stigmatizing and thereby inflict even further economic harm on the company if it's publicly traded, maybe bring its share price down. And second, a concern that a criminal prosecution could lead potentially to a further compromise through public disclosures of the very trade secret that already was compromised through the theft in the first instance. So we're very sensitive to both concerns and recent prosecutions, I think, show that we have pretty successfully navigated ways to address them. Uh, We make every effort, for example, to keep the name of the victim company confidential, if that's the preference of the company. Um, One recent example in May of this year uh, in an insider threat case in the Southern District of New York where Adam used to be a prosecutor, an individual who had worked as a software developer for a U.S. company pled guilty to economic espionage and theft of a trade secret. He'd worked as a developer for this company, and in doing so, he had enjoyed access to the company's proprietary software and their underlying source code. He stole the source code with the intent to benefit the National Health and Family Planning Commission in China, which is a state-controlled entity. 
if you look at our press release, the press release refers to the victim company only as mm-hmm. a U.S. company. Uh, we were able to protect their identity. And similarly, in a prosecution uh, earlier this year in Kansas involving the theft by a Chinese scientist, a variety of rice seeds. We had the corn seed and corn case in Iowa. We had the rice case in Kansas. Something is going on in the Midwest. I don't know what the hell it is. but It's a, it's a dangerous gov- place. It's a dangerous place. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the, at the government's press release in that case, after the defendant was convicted at trial, you'll see the victim referred to only as a Kansas biopharmaceutical mm-hmm. research Great. Facility And with respect to the trade secret itself, we take full advantage of the statutory authority that we have to obtain protective orders uh, from district courts to regulate the handling and dissemination of information regarding trade secrets and to obtain additional court orders to protect against the public disclosure of proprietary information in open court proceedings. These are the kinds of protective orders, for example, that were obtained in the DuPont case that Adam talked about in the Iowa corn seed case I mentioned earlier, as well as in this Kansas rice case Mm. I just mentioned. In cases where trade secrets were stolen through malicious cyber activities, victim companies, uh, we've come to learn, sometimes have an additional array of concerns which causes them in some instances, to be even further reluctant to report the intrusion to law enforcement. They may fear, for example, a loss of control with respect to managing a response to the cyber incident once law enforcement parachutes into the case. Uh, They may perceive that there is a parade of horribles about to be visited upon them, you know, the paradigmatic swarm of black SUVs <laughs> and agents in raid jackets seizing up and boxing their servers and electronic media, or the government holding ambush press conferences they don't know anything about to announce criminal charges or stock price hits, uh, calls from law enforcement to regulators. Um, all those things you know, influence their thinking about whether to cooperate with the government from the get-go. We understand these concerns. Um, And that's why we make every opportunity from the outset of learning about an intrusion to work collaboratively with with victims. Uh, The lead agencies in these investigations, agencies like the FBI, the Secret Service, like the Department of Justice itself, are victim-centric organizations. Uh, We prioritize minimizing the intrusions in anyone's privacy or business records uh, to minimize the duration and scope of any disruption while conducting a cyber investigation. We recognize the need to work cooperatively and discreetly with victim organizations and their outside incident response personnel. Uh, We will use investigative measures that avoid, for example, computer downtime or the displacement of a victim's employees. Adam talked about the importance of maintaining log files earlier. We will, uh, in our incident responses, often simply require access to log files and malware samples, uh, or in some instances, mere images of affected Mm -hmm. machines, items that we expect victim organizations and their outside incident responders already have collected pursuant to their own incident response procedures under the plan that we described before. But in most instances, investigators are interested in the technical details about an intrusion and possibly the surrounding business context to understand more about the intrusion. They're not interested so much in the internal communications within the company about interpreting or discussing technical details or evaluating the sufficiency of an organization's network security. Uh, But there is going to come a time where push comes to shove, where we have to begin making hard decisions, for example, about whether to charge a case and when an investigation Mm -hmm. reaches that point, which is a point where decisions are made that uh, may eventually become uh, known publicly. Uh, We consult with the victim um, to the best we can to hear their questions and concerns, and that includes advanced coordination the best of our ability with the victim organization about the contents of our criminal allegations, any public statements we might make, and we generally, as far as we can, as long as we can, uh, generally don't name a victim in our charging document without the victim's consent. 
Um, and similarly, as I mentioned before, we, we routinely protect sensitive information from public disclosure through protective orders and other remedies. And when it comes to notifying regulators, we exercise our discretion as a general rule. We don't notify regulators of cyber incidents uh, or provide to regulators information that the Justice Department has obtained as part of our criminal investigation. Uh, companies should also know, though, that regulators have indicated uh, publicly that cooperating with law enforcement is relevant to their own decision-making and is regarded as evidence that an organization behaved reasonably with respect to its cyber defenses. So those and other factors uh, weigh uh, strongly in the balance of equities in favor of cooperating with law enforcement early and collaboratively in the event of a cyber incident. So I must tell you, I'm extremely heartened to hear this because I started, it was in this business in the mid-90s, and one of the two issues and concerns we did not were able to convince the private sector to share and seeing what you guys are doing is really an extraordinary achievement. So our hats go off to you. But before you go, uh, I have a question is, let's say you're a young attorney somewhere in the Valley or Brooklyn, and um, they are sort of heading up in college and law school, and now they want to go and help startups. What would you advise these uh, young men and women? Uh, what should they be thinking about? What should they be discussing uh, Adam, what what would you say to these young uh, budding entrepreneurs slash academics slash lawyers? Wow. Uh, well, maybe number one, don't trust free advice. But, <laughs> uh, we'll charge for the podcast it, if we could. Then. It, okay. <laughs> I guess the answer to the question diff- differs if, if it's based. Is it advice about being a lawyer or is it mm. advice specific to a lawyer who wants to help their mm. peers who are focusing on a startup? Sure. And I guess the impression I have is business people are going to be focused principally on making the business work, right? Particularly a startup. Your principal concerns, I assume, are going to be getting the product up and running, whatever it is, selling it, creating a market, and so forth. Uh, You're not necessarily going to have time to worry about who might be going after it, what might go wrong. And so I guess to be a good lawyer, you do the worrying for them and Mm. think about if you were a foreign intelligence service or military, what would you want from this company? How would you try to get it? Would it be an insider? Would it be through a hack? Or maybe it wouldn't be theft. Maybe the product in question or the company in question does something that another country with a certain particular foreign policy goal wants to take on. A movie, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you should be thinking about what is the most valuable thing or things to the startup company or to your friend's company or to your client's company, and how is it vulnerable, and then devise a plan that works back from that to try to protect it. That sounds very, very helpful. Uh, Adam and David, it's been an extraordinary pleasure to have you today. As I said, I was remembered being there at the beginning, and to see how this has evolved over the last 20 years is extremely gratifying, as we were talking about earlier. And I know corporate America very much is looking to what Maine Justice can do and what the Bureau and other law enforcements are. So I'm very gratified to see you guys taking the torch and having the effect that you're having. So our hats are off to you, and I hope the young lawyers realize this might be their future. So last words to you gentlemen. Well, thank you just very much for, for having us here today. I think it's probably clear from our remarks 
It's our privilege to speak uh, on behalf of the Justice Department, but really we stand here with the backing of the tools of the federal government, broadly speaking, and a lot of very hardworking people that you referred to earlier who are also focused on this problem set. So when you're in the private sector and you're thinking about who is on my side up against a foreign adversary, yes, it's the Justice Department, but it's every other agency that touches this problem. Sure. And David, you've been in the department for a little while. Uh, what are your thoughts of this evolution? It's great to be part of this mission. It's a compelling mission. We have a lot of talented, hardworking lawyers, great leadership, and uh, we appreciate the chance to come in here and raise consciousness about what we're up against. Great. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again soon for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff, but you fear the health (laughs) consequences of getting less vitamin D. But you know that national security law gives you a front row seat to history. As we say, either become part of history or let history walk over you. So we're hoping that you'll become part of it and join. Sounds borderline violent, Rishikov. Um, (laughs) Then join us next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And we hope to see you at the next conference or guest speaker series. And remember, listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up. Check us out at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.